The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, everyone, so let's come back to the Dhamma again. And we're going to see. Wow, there's a lot of questions tonight. Okay, that's great. It's nice that people have some questions to ask because uh, it makes it more interesting when you have a bit of interaction in this way. So let's start from the beginning. So dear Ajahn, I grew up being often told you are not good enough. So I ended up uh, choosing many wrong paths. And now I think I'm on the good path. But sometimes when I think about myself in the past, uh, I'm not proud and not happy with the way I was. Uh, how can I forgive myself and how can I be kind to myself? I don't even know where to start. Uh, many thanks. Um, yes, so yeah, I think this, many people have this kind of experience. You're not good enough. Uh, and uh, so uh, welcome to the club, as they say. Uh, we <laughs> and uh, yes, we have chosen many. Everyone has made mistakes in their lives. Yeah? There's not a single person who is here who hasn't made mistakes. And uh, so that's kind of a par for the course, as they say. Uh, um, but what you have to know is that uh, you know one of the reasons why we judge ourselves so harshly very often uh, is because we think we have a choice. We think we could have done things differently. Uh, we could have taken a different path. Uh, and because you have chosen badly, you feel guilty or you feel bad about it because it's your fault. Yeah, you did this. <laughs> and this is actually not really the way Life is. Remember the Buddhist idea? That's where the idea of non-self comes in again. We're talking about yesterday here. That the reason why we choose the way we do is not so much because we are kind of innately bad or evil or whatever. That's not the reason. The reason is just that we are conditioned that way. Very often you don't have a choice. Yeah, you are you're kind of standing in front of a choice and you choose A or B. What makes you choose one or the other? Well, it's basically your conditioning here. And very often we don't have we don't can't really do anything different. And when you reflect on that, that you want to be good, all the people are like that. Most people want to be good because we know inherently that goodness makes us happy. It makes other people happy. We want to be good, but we can't. We can't stop ourselves from doing the wrong thing. Yeah, why? Because the conditioning is so strong. Then what happens is that you start to have compassion for yourself. You realize that actually I didn't have much choice. Uh, conditioning is what drove me in a certain direction, made me do certain things. Uh, and, uh, and that is why I am doing the things I'm doing. Uh, and when you start to understand this, uh, you start to be able to forgive yourself because you realize actually it wasn't you doing these things. It was this kind of robot that is programmed from the past. That robot is doing these things. That robot happens to be, you call yourself me, this robot, this robot here, this robot there, all these robots sitting around. There's a beautiful way of thinking about yourself because you it changes the responsibility. You're not as responsible as you think you are. Then you can forgive yourself. I've made mistakes, okay. But what's to be expected when we are so conditioned? The reason you can't do it is because it feels like you're making choices. It feels like I am making this bad decision. But that is precisely the illusion of non-self. Yeah, this idea that we are in charge is some entity in here who can make choices. Well, that's exactly the delusion. We can't really make those choices. We are trapped by our personality. It's kind of weird, isn't it? Trapped by a personality. We often tend to be, want to be proud of our personality, but the personality is actually a trap. Isn't that kind of, I find it really interesting when I think of personality being a trap rather than being something to be proud of. Your personality, what is that? Your personality is all the conditioning from the past coming together in the present moment. That is your personality. That is who you are now. You can't be any different from what you are. Have you ever tried to step out of your personality? <laughs> can't be done, right? You can't step out of what you are. Okay, this is what I feel like now. Can I step out of that? No, I can't. I'm trapped by what I am in this moment. And the choices I make will depend on that thing I am now. Can't step out of that. 
So have compassion for yourself. Every one of us wants to be kind because we know kindness is happiness. And yet sometimes we cannot stop ourselves from doing the wrong things. Yeah, that requires compassion. You can't. So think like that about yourself. Think about think like that about others as well. When you have kind of when you can have compassion for others, you can also have compassion for yourself. When you can have compassion for yourself, you can have compassion for others, because this is a universal way of thinking about beings. So it's applicable to everyone. These are very important questions, and so just work on it. It's not. I mean, there there is no magic bullet to these things. You're not going to kind of flip like that, but it's something you gradually work with. These are very powerful reflections. These are reflections that are recommended by the Buddha in the suttas. Yeah, these sort of reflections. They're very, very powerful. So all you have to do is do it again and again and again. Build up your own understanding of this idea of being conditioned. And as you build up that understanding, yeah, gradually the feelings of having made mistakes in the past, you think, yeah, actually, it's okay. Yeah, this to be expected. I'm a human being. Yeah. Gradually you overcome it. Takes time. Okay. Dear Ajahn Brahmali, you mentioned ignorance as the lack of understanding independent origination this morning. Please elaborate and teach us about right understanding here. Yes, this is very important, right? Right understanding is really so fundamental, and, and this is really what is the critical thing that is lacking in almost everyone. If you want a Noble Eightfold Path to work, what is the factor number one of the Noble Eightfold Path? Right view. It's the same thing as right understanding. Yeah, It's the same thing as lack of ignorance, if you like. All of these things are very closely related to each other. So the more right view you have, the more powerful is the Noble Eightfold Path. So it's really worthwhile trying to get more right view. The more right view you have, the more powerful your sila is going to be. If you want to be kind all the time, not just externally, how you deal with others, but also internally, in terms of your inner qualities, your perceptions of other people, the way you think about others, all of these things. What is going to make that powerful is right view, right understanding. So it's really worthwhile thinking about this, what it actually means. And what it means, it means understanding why morality matters, yeah, why it is incredibly important. This is the support for meditation practice. This is the support for how you feel about yourself. You have to feel quite good about yourself to be able to meditation to work, yeah. Every time you make a mistake, you take one step back because you're going to feel not so good about yourself. I mean, it's important to forgive ourselves, and you can do that, but the forgiveness only goes so far. There's always going to be a little bit of feeling bad about yourself if you do bad things. So every little action matters. Every thought matters on this path Yeah, in moving forward. And once you start to get that, you kind of become very mindful of what you do, right? It's like, oh, i got to, you know, <laughs> I have to... Th- if every thought matters, uh, you start to become very mindful of what's going through your mind, what's going through your head, uh, and you change and you look at things in a new way. Uh, understanding the impact that lack of kindness has on you personally uh, is very, very important. Uh, and then you find the ways. Because you understand it's important, you find the ways to do that in the right way. Uh, so that actually, you... Uh, you um, become a better person as a consequence. So this is like the beginning, yeah? Understanding why morality is so incredibly important on this path in a very deep way. Now to go really deep in meditation, uh, the other thing that we need to understand is the where happiness is to be found in this world. So happiness, yes, is to be found in morality. That's the first thing. The second thing is to understand that the sensory realm is incredibly limited. It is a very painful place to be. A lot of the time, yeah. If you look at all the a lot of the pain in the world, it is happening in the sensory realm. The animal realm is part of the sensory realm. Lots of pain and problems in the animal realm. The human realm, lots of pain and problems. Every one of us, no one here is too happy. Anyone here is too happy? It's pretty rare. Yes, please. I'm too happy. Okay, if you're too happy, 
you, you can leave. Yeah? You have nothing, <laughs> there's nothing more to be done if you are too happy. No one is too happy. Everyone has more problems than they want to have. Yeah? This is just part of life. People die. People have all kinds of problems in their life. So you understand the limits of the sensory realm. And you start to understand that there is an alternative. You don't have it to be part of the sensory realm. You can withdraw. How do you withdraw? Well, you cannot withdraw but traveling somewhere, yeah, all countries are the same, all people are the same everywhere. There's no difference between us. Tiny little differences that are completely irrelevant. And then we fight wars over those differences. We are nuts, yeah, humanity. As if those differences really are important. No, the only place to get out of the sensory realm is within, is in meditation practice. That's where you get released and where you go beyond the sensory realm is within. We always search outside. We're searching in the wrong place. We need to search inside. That's where we find that escape from the sensory realm. So you need to understand the limits of that sensory realm. There are some beautiful similes that I normally teach on every retreat, except for this one. This is not one of every retreat. This is outside of every retreat. <laughs> I'm sure how that's possible. But so, and there's very powerful similes about the dangers in sensory pleasures. Uh, one of the favorite similes there is a simile of the hungry dog. There's a dog that is hungry. The dog goes to the butcher shop, uh, and the dog's sitting outside the butcher, looking, trying to look cute, yeah, through the window. <laughs> if I look really cute, the owner is bound to throw me some nice meat. That's what the dog kind of thinks. Yeah, it doesn't think that maybe, but you know, perceives that. Uh, sits outside. Uh, but this is a butcher. Yeah, they make money from selling meat. They don't get money from giving meat away to dogs. Yeah, this is the last thing the butcher wants. So the butcher scrapes the bone completely clean. There's a bit of blood left on the bone. That's pretty much it. And I think, yeah, okay. So it has a tiny bit of compassion for the dog. So it chucks the bone to the dog. Yeah. And all the dog gets is this meatless bone smeared with blood. It gets the taste. Yeah, blood tastes a bit like meat. So you get the taste of it, but there's no sustenance. There's nothing to, to fill you up. So the dog kind of is desperate. It wants, still needs to have a, get a good meal. Runs off to the next butcher. Next butcher, just as stingy as the previous one, yeah, scrapes off all the meat, chucks it a bone. Runs off to the next butcher. And so it, it's on and on and on, driven by craving, driven by desire, always moving on in the world, never feeling satisfaction. The sensory world can never give you satisfaction. It's always more craving. You're always being led by the nose, pulled around, the slave to craving, as I was saying yesterday. And then what happens? Then you die. <laughs> and then when you die, then you get reborn. And what do you get? You get reborn as a little puppy. And where do you think your mum takes you? Your mum takes you to the butcher shop. <laughs> then they go to the butcher shop and it all starts over again. And so it goes round and round and round. Well, any kind of end in sight, always running around, being led by the nose, ever agitated, always restless, never satisfied. This is the bleak Buddhist view <laughs> of the world. It sounds bleak, but maybe there's some truth to this. The Buddha said this is the way things really are. If you see the big picture, if you were able to extract yourself from this life and get a panorama of what actually really happens, and you saw how this kind of stretches out over life after life, you would, that's when you would see what's going on. Yeah, that's what the Buddha says. You know, if you don't like the idea, then uh, I can see why. But <laughs> this is what, how the Buddha explains this. And then you feel, I don't want this anymore. You get this feeling inside, I've had enough of this, I want to get off this wheel. Where do you, does that happen? It happens within. It happens by letting go of that world. The more you let go of that world, the deeper is your inner peace and your ability to gain stillness inside. Yeah, that beautiful stillness inside. And all of you have experienced some of that. That's why you're here. Otherwise you wouldn't be here. Yeah, unless you knew something about the spiritual path. And then eventually, the more you let go of that world, this is why I say this thing. I don't say this thing simply to kind of scare you or anything like that, uh, even though it might be a bit scary. I say it because it helps you to let go a little bit of that world which is so unsatisfactory. And as you do that, you find the happiness within. Uh, this is right understanding. Yeah. So there's all these levels of understanding. And as you do that, yeah, we say that it begins with avidja, avidja, pacha, sankara, the uh, ignorance is the 
cause or the condition for willed activities uh, yeah, or intentional like, actions. That was, uh, the translation was there. So the reason why that is the case is because when we have ignorance, we go out into the world trying to create happiness for ourselves. We think that happiness is for us, to, for us to kind of grab hold of in the world. Yeah, if we just live in the do the right thing, work really hard, we will get that happiness in the world. Wrong. You don't get that happiness in the world. The world always lets you down in the end. And we feel powerful. We feel we have the power. Yeah, the sense of self says, yeah, I can act. Action, I can act. This is the self. Two, I know where happiness is. It's in the world. Based on those two basic ideas, both of them turn out to be wrong. Yeah, you go out into the world. You try to create happiness. Actually, happiness happens when you don't act, when you become still and peaceful inside. This is where ignorance turns off over into understanding. You know that not acting is the real happiness. So you stop all the intentional actions. That's where samadhi and peace happens inside. The less you act, the more happy you are. It's the exact inverse of what we think it is. This is why meditation is about letting go of the activity. Not doing the meditation, but allowing the meditation to happen. That's when it kind of comes together. There's another aspect of right view. Doing is suffering. Not doing is happiness. All of this, ultimately, right understanding is the understanding that rebirth is a waste of time. The idea of being reborn and going on into this world again and again. Actually, it is no, no point in that. What we really should seek for is end all rebirth. Come to cessation. Niroda. Sanya Vedaita Niroda, the end of perception and feeling. That is kind of the highest bliss, according to the Buddha. These are all different aspects of right understanding. The Buddha, in the end, he talks about the Four Noble Truths as being right understanding. Yeah? So this is kind of how it is defined in the suttas. But all the things I've been saying now are aspects of the Four Noble Truths. Instead of just saying the Four Noble Truths, you've got to understand them. Then you have right understanding. I try to make it a bit more practical so you can relate to it. That's what that is about. All right. These are really nice questions, by the way. I really I commend you for asking good questions. That's good. Dear Ajahn, thank you very much for your teachings. I keep thinking about what you said yesterday about the qualities required for deep meditation and seeking enjoyment in the sensory world being diametrically opposed. This makes a lot of sense. I struggle to find a sustainable balance between the two, however. Sometimes I restrain my senses too much to the point where my defilements start protesting loudly and life becomes quite unenjoyable. Mm -hmm. Yes. On the other hand, sometimes being too relaxed with restraint leads me to feel I'm not practicing properly. Any advice on finding the balance? Thank you. Yes, these are, yes, indeed, very good question. So the, the problem here is that um, when you say that you restrain your senses, right? The problem there is that you restrain in the wrong way. That's why the defilements start protesting inside. You're not restraining by wisdom, you're restraining by willpower. It's an incredibly important difference. If you restrain by willpower, your defilements are going to start shouting in the back of your mind and say, no, stop, I don't, I don't like this. If you restrain by wisdom, you're going to eliminate the defilement completely and there's no problem there. So how, how do we do this? So the way we do this is number one defilement that we want to overcome is ill will, yeah? anger, irritation with other people, especially other people is the worst thing in life. <laughs> is that right? Other people are the best thing and the worst thing, right? This is the weird thing about people. We love people and sometimes it's wonderful to be with good friends, but sometimes we hate people. People are the most difficult thing as well. Yeah, It's like... Yeah, I think it was a famous philosopher who said, what is suffering in life? Suffering is other people. I think that's what he said. And so there's a, it's very complicated with other people. Very, very difficult and complicated. So uh, what we do with other people, instead of restraining our anger, holding it back with willpower, we learn to look at the person in the way whereby anger cannot, re cannot arise. That is the right way. 
And this is very clear when you read the suttas carefully. For example, you read suttas like the uh, uh, Dveda Vitaka Sutta, the two kinds of thought uh, in the Majjhimanikaya. I really recommend that sutta. It's a beautiful sutta, Majjhimanikaya number 19. And this sutta shows you very clearly that the way to overcome unwholesome thoughts is by thinking in the right way, perceiving in the right way, changing your attitude to what you're looking at. And what the Buddha specifically says, he says that, well, if I see... This is actually from the biography of the Buddha. The Buddha is talking about his own life. Yeah, the Buddha to be how he overcame these defilements of the mind. And he's telling us we should be doing the same. That's basically what he's saying. And he says he classified his thoughts into two categories. Bad thoughts, unwholesome thoughts on one hand. Good thoughts, wholesome thoughts on the other hand. And then he says whenever an unwholesome thought would arise... What would he think? Well, I would think this thought is dangerous. It leads to suffering for me. It leads to suffering for others. It leads to suffering for both. It, is, it leads to the cessation of wisdom. Panya nirodika. It leads away from Nibbana. It's on the side of anguish, on the side of suffering. So you have to understand that ill will is a real problem. Yeah? This actually leads to suffering for everyone, especially for you. It leads you away from meditation, away from peace. So you have to understand why it is a real problem. And then when you understand that it is a real problem, which you probably understand already to some extent, yeah, we all understand that to some extent, why ill will is problematic. Then the second piece of advice is then how to get rid of it. And how to get rid of it is this idea, as I've been talking about before. Remember other people, they're just blind. They don't know what they're doing. If they do something bad towards you and you want to get angry with them, no need to get angry. You should have compassion for a person who is nasty towards you because they are doing something that they don't, probably don't really want to do. They probably want to be kind, but the defilement stopped them from being kind. So instead of focusing on you and your pain, focus on the problem in the other person. They are the one who has the real problem. They are the one who are creating long-term suffering for themselves. You have to bear with it for a short time. In the long run, they are going to have to face the consequences of their bad conduct. Turn it around. Don't make it self-centered. It's not about you at all. You are irrelevant in this situation. It could happen to anyone. It's not about me. Okay. So who is it about? It's about the other person. Turn it around. Have compassion for the other person. It's incredibly powerful. Yeah. And it's such a beautiful thing because it releases you, as I said yesterday, from this self-centeredness, this feeling of me, my little world. No, it's not. Forget about your little world. Expand your mind out to everyone. Yeah. Have compassion and kindness. Such a far more beautiful mind state than this enclosed, confined mind which thinks about me, which is kind of contracted in a way. This is how you do it. Use wisdom power, not willpower, to restrain. This is one of the things that is actually very problematic very often in the suttas, when you read them, you have the kind of the formula for sense restraint, uh, and it says you restrain the eye so that the unwholesome thoughts of desire and aversion don't arise. So you guard the eye and you restrain the eye. And then you think restraint means, oh, willpower, yeah? Really kind of forcing yourself not to have these things. Uh, because that's what restraint tends to mean in English. Uh, yeah, you're going to restrain someone, okay, hold them, yeah, don't go too far. Uh, but um, you restrain a child, right, or whatever it is. Uh, but that's not actually what it means. Uh, it actually means something else. There's another one of my favorite suttas, which I often read out on the retreats. And it's called the um, Pangsudovaka Sutta, the um, earth washer. And it's about how to refine gold. It's a very beautiful sutta. And it shows you refine gold, first of all, by washing out the coarse defilements of the gold, the gravel, whatever it is. Then you have the medium defilements in the gold, like the sand or whatever. Then the really refined stuff, yeah? You gradually refine out uh, uh, all of these kind of things. And in the same way that you refine the gold, you refine the mind in the same way. Yeah? You start off with the coarse defilements, going to the middling defilements, the refined defilements, then the super refined defilements, then all defilements eventually. And it says there, you very strong language. You uh, 
um, eliminate the defilements. Uh, yeah, you make an end of the defilements. You obliterate the defilements. Uh, this is it, how it is translated into English, and the Pali basically means that. Anabhavang karoti, make them non-existent. It's like kind of powerful, yeah? It sounds like a lot of willpower until you reflect about it carefully, until you start to read the other suttas about how it is done. You realize that, no, it does not mean willpower at all. What it means is wisdom power. Wisdom power, far more powerful than willpower. If you want to obliterate a defilement and you try to hold it in check by willpower, then it's going to come back very easily again. As soon as you let go of the willpower, bang, it comes back. It doesn't really obliterate anything. The only way to obliterate a defilement in your mind is by wisdom power, understanding it. And if you really understand it, if you're able to shift from ill will to compassion, the defilement can go like that and not come up for a long time afterwards because you're looking at the situation in a new way. That is the right way. And then when you practice, you will no longer have this problem uh, yeah, that you're talking about here, whereby your mind is objecting and kind of complaining in the background, and then defilements come back. yeah. And then the restraint will actually work, and it will be a good kind of restraint, coming from wisdom and understanding rather than willpower. Uh. So never be relaxed, nor be forceful. Uh. Use wisdom instead. That is really the answer to this question. That is how you find the balance. So good luck. To be able to use wisdom is not... The downside with using wisdom is that you need wisdom. Yeah, not many people have that wisdom that is required. So how do you get that wisdom? Reflect. Think about the Dhamma. How do I overcome these things? Use some of these ideas, but make them yours. Don't just... Try to do exactly what I say. Make it yours, in your way. It becomes meaningful to you. And I can assure you, if you keep on doing this, there comes a point when it's very hard to get angry. You can't get angry anymore with people. It just doesn't happen. You know, I'm not saying that I never get angry. Sometimes I get a bit upset. Not with Adani Sarno, because he's such a nice person, but other people. <laughs> Sometimes you get a bit upset with people. I still do, but uh, you know, it, it's much less. Yeah, you should have seen me 25 years ago when I started out. I was just shaving my head. Whoa, that was a bit, would have been scary for you. I'm glad you can't see me. That would have been very, very embarrassing for me. But it works. Yeah, it's, these ideas are very powerful and they change you over time. You come out as a better person. Marvelous to see that magic of the path working on you. Yeah, and you transformed into a different kind of being more kind, more reasonable, uh, more whatever. That's what, anyway, that's what it feels like from my, I don't know how you see me, but that's how it feels from my point of view. <laughs> feel, I feel more reasonable than I used to feel. Anyway, okay, good luck. Ooh, okay, that's only three questions, half an hour gone. Okay, we better, <laughs> better get going. Yeah. Hi, Arjan. Um, I am at the beginning stage of meditation. When I sat down and things are calming down while watching the breath, I feel so great that at times I kind of penetrate into the darkness of my closed eyes and end up having a bit of a headache. So I believe I shouldn't do this next time I get the urge and should stick to only watching the breath. I'd like to hear your advice, please. Thank you. Yes. Um, so you are using willpower here. Yeah? If you get a headache, usually it's because of willpower. It's almost always the case. So you're using too much force. You're trying to see something, trying to do something. So remember, meditation should always be about relaxation. Huh? Always just enjoying the peace, sitting back, allowing things to happen. You are not doing anything. You're not doing the meditation. The meditation is happening to you. That is the right attitude huh? So you are passive. Passiveness is really what meditation is about. And it's quite hard to be passive because we are used to be the agents in everything. So you have to learn to be passive, just sitting back, allowing things to be. So if you're trying to penetrate the darkness, well, that means you are doing too much by definition. So allow things to happen to you. You don't do anything. And then enjoy the ride, as they say. Is it? Okay, all right. Okay, then fire, fire away. Yeah. I have a question. Just one. If you are relaxed and you 
Focusing happens by itself. So as as you relax, yeah, there's maybe a tiny bit of willpower there sometimes, a very very small amount. But the, as you relax, the breath is there. Yeah, suddenly the breath is there. You think, oh, the breath is here. Yeah. But the breath is almost not there. When I'm like, yeah. Just, yeah. Sometimes, sometimes hardly noticeable. Yeah, but let me, okay. Let me just finish, and um, yeah, because uh, if you talk too much, it might be too disturbing. Yeah, so I'll, I'll just I'll just finish and uh, you, and take it or leave it. If you don't like it, uh, that's okay. If you like it, it's good as well. See what happens. Uh. So you just uh, the breath. It's true. The breath it can be very refined, and it's often that's because the mindfulness isn't strong enough. Uh. So sometimes what you have to do is just let it be. Yeah. Okay, the breath isn't there. You watch what you can. If the breath disappears, enjoy whatever peace is available. The breath will eventually come back again. But all of these things have to do with the development of your mindfulness. So you just have to do more of the basic things on the path. And as you do more of the basic things on the path, mindfulness will grow over time. What you need, maybe a bit more metta, a bit more karuna, a bit more compassion, all of these kind of things. And they will enable the mindfulness to become stronger, which eventually will allow you to follow any breath, regardless of how refined it is. So you stay with what you have. And uh, as you stay with what you have, the idea, one of the critical things on the, that makes samadhi and focus possible is the joy in the meditation. This is really the critical factor, because when you have joy in your meditation, it is automatic that the mind wants to go to the joy. Yeah? Joy is attractive by its very nature. So what you have to do is you have to find ways of developing that joy inside, ultimately. That is where it comes from. Yeah, so you have to do that of joy, exactly. And where that comes from, again, it comes from living well. Yeah, If you are a kind person and then you reflect on your conduct, you feel great, you feel good about yourself. And sometimes that can actually give rise to joy. This is a specific way of developing the mind, recommended in the suttas. The Buddha talks about silanusati, recollection of one's virtue and kindness. Be generous. If you are a generous person, sometimes you can feel a lot of joy in giving to someone else. Yeah? Have you ever had a feeling you give to someone and you feel really happy about it? Now, if that happens, then try to think back at these times when, it, when, it, when that happened to you and bring that into your meditation practice. These are kind of the basic ways of developing joy on the path. Yeah? Sila nusati, chaga nusati. Sometimes you don't even need to do that. Sometimes all you have to do is just watch the breath and a joy just happens. Because you are living well already. That joy is the glue that makes samadhi possible. When joy comes, you don't want to go anywhere else. You don't want to think about kind of random stuff because this is much more happy. The reason we think about things and get distracted or whatever it is, is because we find more happiness in the thinking than we find in the meditation. That's the reason. So that's when these things kind of gradually come together. So you have to... Experiment a bit. Try, try things a little bit. Yeah, things become peaceful. Try one thing. Ask yourself very gently. You don't want to do too much thinking at you know when you become peaceful because it disturbs the whole thing. But just ask yourself, uh, you know, when did I last have some really happy experience, really joyful experience, uh, and then try to bring that joyful experience into the present, uh, or just remind yourself, actually, I'm living a really good life. Wow, that's wonderful. And you feel joy because you remember that. Uh, it's as simple as that. Uh, and if it doesn't come automatically, it's because you haven't done enough of those basic things yet on the path. Uh, that's kind of the idea. And if that self-judgment comes across, like, yeah. suppose if I remember that, oh, I did that great act in order to talk to somebody, yeah. and then my critical mind immediately says, come on, you don't be so much uh, yeah. thinking of yourself as a generous person. You know what you are. Think, okay, so yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So then again, back to that, uh, that yeah. self-criticism yeah. really brings back. Yeah, yeah. Removes the joy. So how to bring the joy again <laughs> from that particular direction? Yeah, you know, yeah. You are increasing your pride. Mm. Uh, mm. You know, I'm a kind person. Mm. Mm. Yeah. <laughs>
you have to do it in a less egotistical way. If you say, yeah, I'm a good person, I'm kind. Yeah, if you say it in that way, it's not going to work. It's a very kind of self-centered way of saying it. It's a gentle feeling. Yeah. It's a subtle feeling of feeling good about yourself. You just know you're living well. It's not an ego thing at all. If you make that into an ego thing, then, of course, the judgmental mind will come. But if you just know, I just know you're living well in a deep sense. There's not, there's not going to be any judgment there, I guarantee you. Get the ego out of the way. That's the problem. But let's not take too many more verbal, because if everyone talks as much as you do. We're going to have a really, we're going to have a serious problem here. So let's stop it there otherwise. But I, I appreciate your question. So, yeah, very good. <laughs> okay. Okay, so um, let's move on to the next one. Uh, dear Ajahn, much gratitude for your teachings. We are not we have not had a, a good fortune of being monastics this lifetime. Chances of stream entry are nil. <laughs> uh, that's maybe a little bit pessimistic, but yeah, they're not perhaps super great. That's probably true. It is, you know, it is, stream entry is, um, is fairly uncommon, put it that way. It is very despairing to think of the rounds of samsara one may have to go through before making a breakthrough. This life is already three quarters over and we can die at any moment. Scary and depressing to think that if we were reborn in a lower realm, Chancellor Dhamma as a human being may arise only after eons. However good karma one does now, previous karmas may prevail and cause birth in the lower realms at time of death. Please advise. Gee. <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure. You, you, is your, medita your meditation can't be very happy, I, I would think. <laughs> if, I hope you don't think about this during meditation because, whoa, that's going to kind of drag, drag you down. Yeah, it's going to be a big letdown. So the, you, the future is uncertain. Don't, you, know, you don't know. But remember that the idea of these um, recollections is just to give you a bit of inspiration to practice. Yeah. So there's two kinds of inspiration. One is the inspiration which shows you the danger if you don't practice. It's kind of the negative inspiration. Okay, boo, I better get my act together. The other one is all the happiness and joy on the path. Yeah, That's the pull. It's like the carrot and the whip yeah, coming together. Yeah? So make sure you balance those things. Uh, there's a lot of happiness to be had in Buddhist teachings. Yeah, lots. The whole path is about happiness, really, from one end to the other one. So remember that as well. So just do your very best. And if you do your very best, chances are you will be able to continue as well in your next life. Yeah? If, you, if you live well, chances are you will be reborn as a human being if you live really well. If you live even better, you might get reborn in the Deva Loka, in the heavenly realms. And there you hang out with other Buddhist Devas. Right? They, I once heard there was some monk. He said that when you go reborn in heaven, there's the Buddhist corner of heaven, there's a Christian corner, there's the Hindu corner of heaven. Yeah. So you want to be reborn in the Buddhist corner of heaven. Yeah? Hang out with the Buddhist devas. This is what. <laughs> This was some monk with kind of special powers who said that. I don't know if it is true, but that's what he said anyway. So, and this is the thing in the suttas. It says specifically this, yeah? It says that you read the suttas, you understand the Dhamma to the best of your ability. You get reborn in the heavenly realm, and then when the happy ones, the happy devas, teach the Dhamma, you think, wait a minute, I've heard this before somewhere, <laughs> right? You recognize the Dhamma because you have practiced it really well as a human being. So if, we, if you put in the best effort you can in this life. It doesn't matter if you're three quarters of the way through your life. It's kind of irrelevant because you still have some good years left. You can do a lot in those good years. Understanding the Dhamma, make that your priority in your life. Be as kind as you possibly can. Do all the right things. And as you do that, you are going to lean towards the Dhamma. And that leaning towards the Dhamma means you get reborn. You will still be leaning towards the Dhamma, because the mind that we have now is the mind you bring with you into the next life. You, the tendencies you have now will be the tendency that you also have in your next life. Yeah? So you carry it with you. It's never too late, even if you are 110. And no one here is 110, so it means you have, a lot of, <laughs> you have lots of possibilities of doing the right thing. So find a balance. Yeah? So the, these teachings are not there to make you depressed or sad. They are there to give you a bit of inspiration. This is important what we're doing here. There's actually nothing else in life that is more important. This is it. This is what life is about, the spiritual path. Everything else is kind of a sideshow. 
So when you go to work, why do you work? To practice the spiritual path. That's why you work. So when you go to work, remember, treat your fellow workers with kindness, with care, with understanding. Be, bring them a cup of tea. My fellow worker, thank you for being my fellow worker for all these years. Wow, I really appreciate you. I never told you before, that was my mistake. I really appreciate you. Your fellow workers are going to be shocked if you say that, right? <laughs> but say these kind of things because they're beautiful things to say. Thank you, Adonisana, for being my fellow worker of all these years. <laughs> so I, I better say it now, otherwise I'll forget, I'll forget again. I'll take the opportunity when it comes up. Uh, he's a marvelous fellow. I'm, we're very lucky as monks. We get the best fellow workers. Yeah? We get really, really... We get, actually, sometimes in lay life too, you get really nice fellow workers. Uh, so your work life, make it into a spiritual path. Uh, yeah, that's the whole point. The point is not that you practice the spiritual life so we can become better at work. That's getting things the wrong way around. Uh, you, you, you do your best at work so that your spiritual life becomes more powerful and better and develops more. Same thing with the family life. Yeah, Family life, if you have a family, you have, well, you have to live that life. Make it into a spiritual path. Everything in your life, you integrate it into the spiritual path. That's when it becomes powerful. So um, this is how to think, yeah? And uh, so try to get that balance right so you don't become depressed and sad because then it really destroys what this path is about. Ooh, okay, I better get going here. Respected Ajans. Ajans, okay. Thank you for gracing us with a profound insight to overcome ignorance. <laughs> okay, that's very good. So, um, question number one. Is there a relevance to the seven days of the Buddha's meditations? Why do monks and nuns shave their heads? Much appreciation. Is there a relevance to the Buddha's seven days of meditation? That's interesting, isn't it? Why did the Buddha practice for seven days? And uh, I think... The answer here is um, probably maybe an answer you might not expect, but I think the answer, one of the things, have you, have you read the Satipatthana Sutta? If you read the Satipatthana Sutta, yeah, you come to the very end and the Buddha says, well, if you practice the Satipatthana for seven years, you will become either fully enlightened or a non-returner. Seven years, seven weeks, seven years. Why seven years? Six years, five years, four years, two years, one year, if you practice it, not for 11 months, but for seven months. After one year, seven months. Six months, five months, four months, three months, two months, one month, 14 days, one, seven days. Seven days is the last one. Yes, this idea of seven comes all the way through. And here we have seven meditate, meditating for seven. What is it about this number seven? Is it magical? Maybe it is magical. Yeah, so the, the point here is that it, well, this is interesting. This is about mythology. Uh, and this is something you find throughout human history that there are certain numbers that have mythological significance. Yeah, One of the most important ones is the number three here. Yeah? Number three, very powerful. And of course, in Buddhist, number three is also very important. It's a very powerful mythological number that kind of means unity. Another number which means unity is the number seven. Yeah? Something is complete, yeah? fulfilled, is unified when it comes to seven factors. Yeah? So what has mythology what got to do with Buddhism? <laughs> well, remember that the Buddha didn't say... The Buddha is a very rational person. He doesn't really dabble much in mythology. But mythology actually is a very important thing in human psychology and human history. We live a lot of our lives by mythology. We have modern mythologies. Mythology is not just something from the past. It's something that we bring into every society. I'm no expert on this, but I have heard a little bit from people who know much more than I do. And so seven is this mythological number. And because a lot of these things were not actually written by the Buddha, I don't think the Buddha is that much into mythology, maybe a little bit, but not that much. But this is a narrative written by other people. So they bring in things that are really a bit foreign to Buddhism. And one of the things they will bring in are things that society in general value. Yeah? That's why you see the four great kings coming and offering stone bowls to the Buddha. Did the four great kings really offer stone bowls to the Buddha? I find it a bit hard to believe that they gave a... Sounds a bit strange. Maybe they 
were there. Maybe they supported, well, maybe they did something, but offering, maybe they did offer Stonewall, who knows? But there is mythology that creeps in to the stories because the stories are written by other people. They were not spoken by the Buddha. Yeah? And when, as soon as you start writing a story about the Buddha, you try to remember the events of his life, then things start to creep in which may not be historically accurate. This is just the nature of things. If you look at the different Buddhist schools, they have different stories about the Buddha. They're not exactly the same. Some are more mythological than others. Some have more miracles or supernormal powers, if you like, than the others. How come they are different? Well, they're different because obviously they have been added by redactors, by narrative makers, by storytellers over time. So this is what I think is the reason for the seven days. Yeah, I think it's just a mythological element that has crept into the suttas. Could also be that when you have very deep meditation, they usually say that seven days is kind of the limit. Yeah, could be it. So uh, there's different possibilities there, but uh, that would be my guess. Why do monks and nuns shave their heads? That's a slight. That's a uh, yes, why do we do that? Uh, I don't know, it's very practical. Uh, it's, very, it's very handy to shave your head, you know. Uh, I really recommend it, uh, because it's very easy to look after, uh, yeah. Just uh, off, off it goes. <laughs> um, but it's basically, it's the idea of renunciation. You renounce, and uh, the idea that is hair is very much of people's identity. Uh, people look after the hair. You know, they comb it and all of these kind of things, make sure they look just right. It's a very important marker for who we are as people. So shaving off your hair is an act of renunciation. It means giving up the sens sensual realm to some extent. It's the way what they did in ancient India at the time of the Buddha. All samanas, all people who went forth and became ascetics in ancient Indian society, they would shave off their hair as an act of renunciation. But I... It's actually great. I really recommend it. It's much better to have no hair than to have hair. I reckon, anyway. As, 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 at least after all these years, you kind of get used to it. Do you agree? Easy to look after. Easy to look after, right, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, mm, that's exactly right. Okay. Dear Arjan, can we exercise compassion towards other beings who have been nasty to us by thinking of them in terms of uh, anatta, i.e. they and their behavior is due to certain cause and conditions. There is no being really there who is in, insulting you. Yes, you can do it that way. That's very much what I was talking about before. Yeah, There is no being there. Well, yes, I mean, there are people just like us, but there's no kind of inherent person who is inherently evil. Yeah, that's kind of the point there, I suppose. Second, are we not heir to our kamma? So if one is in a bad marriage rather than blaming the spouse, are we right in thinking that if not here, any other spouse that would have had would still cause misery? If not him, <laughs> him or okay, yeah, because of your own kamma. We have a bad relationship, be it X, Y, Z spouse, because therefore our, of our kamma. Well, not that's that's not really how kamma works. Yeah, this is kind of I think one of the Buddhist, one of the most common misunderstandings in Buddhism, is that everything is because of our kamma. That's not the case. Everything is not because of your kama. Sometimes you make a bad choice. You choose a bad spouse. That's why you have a bad spouse. Yeah, <laughs> not because of bad kama. You uh, you were you were young. You were foolish. You didn't know what you were doing. So sometimes it is okay to get a divorce and say, "Let me find someone better." Yeah, that's okay. Maybe you have grown a bit. Hopefully, you've grown a bit wiser as you got older. Kama is only one aspect, and uh, a lot of things can be changed if we live well. Yeah, things are not kind of set in stone at all. So um, sometimes people say you have to allow things to take their course because it's just bad kammas. You allow, it's like you get ill. One of the very interesting things we sometimes talk about in Buddhism is like things like euthanasia. Is euthanasia or assisted suicide, is that acceptable from a Buddhist point of view? And many Buddhists will say, no, you can't do that. You have to allow kamma to take its course. 
but that doesn't really that's not really true yeah if you break your leg do you just leave it and allow kamma to take its course or do you go to hospital and said you know please put it in plaster so it grows back together you go to hospital right you don't allow kamma to take its course so it's not really a good argument against you know the idea of assisted suicide so i say that from a buddhist point of view it is uh, at least in principle, not a problem. For each individual situation, it will depend on all kinds of things. But in principle, I don't think it is a, a, an issue. So don't take kamma as the same as fate. It is not fate. We can make changes. Yeah. But uh, you are right in one way. If you have a bad spouse, someone who is very difficult, then uh, if they're not, if you can deal with it and you can grow, it is often better than trying trying to find someone else. It depends how bad it is. If it is really bad, of course you're you're better off finding someone else, right? Or even living by yourself or becoming a monk or nun or whatever. Yeah, it's better than having a really. Sometimes partners can be turned out to be really, really, really bad, violence and what have you. But sometimes it is not that bad, and then you can maybe overcome it in by compassion and kindness, these kind of things. So it's all about, find, you know, there's no absolutely right or wrong answer to these, uh, these questions. So. Dear Ajahn, when you are focusing on your breathing during meditation, your mind wanders to all sorts of thoughts. What do you do to try and bring the mind back to meditation? So, um, this is the reason, this, why does your mind wander during meditation, right? Uh, why do you think that is the case? Uh, I'll tell you why. Uh, one reason is because you're not enjoying the meditation. You, you want to do anything but meditate, yeah? Oh, the breath, so boring, yeah? Let me think about what I'm going to have for dinner when I get back, when I get out of this blooming eight priests that I'm going to have this beautiful dinner back home. That's what your mind thinks about, right? Uh, well, these eight priests, they are terrible, uh, a real dukkha. Something like that. There's a sutta where the Buddha talks to Visaka, you know, Lady Visaka, the very famous lady disciple of the Buddha. And she asks, how do you practice the Upasatha day in a way that it is very powerful? And the Buddha says, yeah, one way of practicing the Upasatha is you go to the monastery, and when you go to the monastery, you sit down and meditate, and as you meditate, you think about all the things you're going to do when you come back home again. Yeah, I'm going to enjoy this, I'm going to play my PlayStation the Buddha didn't say that, but uh, you know, <laughs> something like that. You're going to enjoy all the entertainments, yeah, and you just fantasize about all the things you're going to do. And the Buddha says that uposada is no good. It doesn't do anything for you. It's useless. Or even worse, one is where you kind of think about, I'm going to have compassion for all these beings, but the beings beyond that, I'm not going to have any compassion for. Yeah, <laughs> also a bad idea. So the Buddha says the way to have an opposer that is really valuable is to have metta for all beings. So the reason is, is that you have no, it's not interesting enough what you're doing. You're not really finding the breath very interesting, so you'd rather do other things instead. So this is one way of doing, getting right, is to have, make the breath more interesting. Yeah? How do you make the breath more interesting? You have to look for the good qualities in the breath. It's peaceful. Actually, peace is really nice. It can be blissful if you get, get it right. When it really starts to calm down, it can be very blissful. So you remember those times that you had with your breath that were really happy. Yeah? And then the mind becomes more inclined to watching the breath. Uh, see the goodness in the breath. Uh, add some metta to the breath. Uh, Ajahn Brahm used to, used to teach a meditation where you have, actually have metta to the breath. You anthropomorphize the breath. Uh, the breath is like a human being almost. Uh, yeah, and you have met that to thank you, breath, for being my friend, my friend in meditation. Yeah, thank you for being there. Thank you for supporting me through all these years. You are such a beautiful, gentle friend, breath. Most of the time, I don't even notice you, but now I'm going to hang out with you. Thanks for being there. You have this beautiful feeling of almost kindness towards the breath, and you hang out with the breath. Then it kind of smooths out. So you bring the little bit of metta into it. Yeah. So sometimes you can do a bit of metta meditation as well. Remind yourself of how fortunate you are to have all these wonderful people that come here with you, people who practice a spiritual path, people who want to be kind, people who want to live their life in the right way, 
Everyone who is here is a person who wants to live well, otherwise you wouldn't be here. Yeah, it's obvious. So everyone here is worthy of respect. Everyone here is worthy of metta and compassion. Everyone here is, is worthy of all these positive intentions that we have towards other people. So you think, wow, actually I'm so fortunate having so all these wonderful Kalyana mittas. This is a specific reflection the Buddha advises in the suttas. Kalyana mitta nusati, or something like that. I can't remember. It's found in the Anguttara 11th, I think. Yeah. Remembering your Kalyana mittas and how fortunate you are. Yeah, fortunate to have the Buddha as your teacher, to have sometimes good and good bank. Good monks and nuns, <laughs> good and bad, no, that's a good monks and nuns who come out and who help you out. People like Ajahn Brahm or other monks and nuns who come, whoever it is, who support you and help you out. And all your Kalanamittas around you, all the lay people, everyone working together to make this Buddha society something beautiful. It's amazing what you're doing here in, at the BSV. It's wonderful. We're trying to do the same thing in Perth, BSWA. Yeah, it's amazing that we have these communities and it's so helpful. It's so hard to be an isolated person in the world and living the spiritual life all by yourself. It's almost impossible. We all need support. That's one of the reasons why we have monastic communities. That's one of the reasons why we have communities like this coming together. Yeah. Wow, I'm so lucky to be part of this. You have a sense of metta inside. When that metta is there, then you watch the breath. The breath is much more beautiful as well because your mind is already peaceful. You already have a positive state of mind. So you need to see the beauty, make the breath beautiful. Then it will you want to hang out with the breath. Then there's the opposite side of the coin. Yeah, The reason why you think about things is because you think those things are important. If you understand that those things are just rubbish... It's all rubbish, what you're thinking here. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds really harsh, doesn't it? Yeah. But it's kind of true, though. I know what I think is mostly rubbish. Yeah, I just, why am I thinking about these things? Just, why now? Yeah, and it's, a lot of time is rubbish. I remember there was a meditator we had at uh, Jana Grove Meditation Center in Perth. Uh, and he said, yeah, my mind is so obsessed with thinking. Yeah. After a while, there was nothing more to think about. Uh, and then I started thinking about the. I had just done the washing, yeah. I'd hung my clothes on the line, and I was thinking about whether I should hang them this way or that way on the line. <laughs> That's kind of how desperate my mind was to kind of think about something. Yeah? That's what I mean by rubbish. Yeah, there's a lot of rubbish in life, and this is not the time to think. So understand that those thoughts you have are actually not very useful. What are those thoughts that you have? Well, think about it. Sometimes you fantasize about something, yeah? You fantasize about the sensory world, all the wonderful things out there you're going to do or whatever it is. And that's what I've been trying to say. The sensory world is inherently unsatisfactory, so forget about that. Sometimes you think about the problems you have in life. How am I going to resolve those problems, yeah? Forget about that because there's always another problem behind. There's always more problems. So you're never going to finish with problems. You might as well stop straight away and forget about those problems. Yeah. Otherwise, you're going to think about problems forever. Or you think about someone who slighted you, someone who wasn't kind, and you get a bit of ill will and you think about that. Forgive in your meditation straight away. No Follow some of these advice I've given before about how to deal with people. Forgive them. Be finished with it. Ask yourself, whatever it is that you're thinking about, ask yourself if it really is important. Understand its limitation. Understand that actually it probably has no value at all, what you're thinking about. Let it go. So these are the two ways. Learn to enjoy the meditation object and learn to understand that the things you are thinking about is mostly rubbish. Then you are done. If you want to think... Think, sit down and think specifically about a certain topic. That's called directed thinking, not just this random stuff that churns around in our minds. Ooh, so many questions. Um, okay, I'll go a little bit longer because uh, there are some of you who are leaving today, last day, right? For some of you, so I go a bit longer. Tomorrow. Tomorrow's last day. What today is it? Today? Sunday. Today's Sunday. Yeah. So you're, they're going for three days? Uh? Yeah, three days. Ah, in that case, I don't have to go so much longer. Then. Okay, I'll do a couple more anyway, because uh, we are at it. Okay, so th they're staying until Monday. Is it public holiday tomorrow? Or? No, people are just staying anyway. Okay, what a wonderful thing. Okay. 
That's very, very good. Okay, so let's do one more. Hello, teacher. <laughs> it was said that one who understands dependent origination understands the Dhamma. One who understands Dhamma understands dependent origination. Uh, if so, why it was said so? How to cultivate that understanding? Why was this said? Well, because um, dependent origination, as I mentioned before, yeah, is the... Um, same thing as the second and the third noble truth, which are core to what the Dhamma is about. Yeah, what is the Dhamma? The Dhamma is really about getting rid of suffering and finding the highest happiness. Nibbanang paramang sukang. Nibbana is the highest happiness. Nirvana is the highest happiness. This is what you find in the Dhammapada. This is what Buddhism is about. This is the goal of Buddhism. It's the highest happiness. So we're trying to achieve the highest happiness, highest contentment, highest liberation, highest freedom, highest of everything good. And we're trying to eliminate all the bad things. Right? This is what we're trying. So that is the first noble truth, the noble truth of suffering. If we understand suffering, then there's a chance we can find happiness. Once you understand suffering, you want to know the cause of suffering. Cause of suffering is shown through dependent origination. When you understand the cause, you can eliminate the cause. This is the third noble truth. You eliminate all suffering. And the fourth noble truth is on the path that helps you eliminate that cause. So this is why the Dhamma, the thing that we are trying to do, the teaching we have, the, the, the path of practice that we have, yeah, is the same as dependent origination. These are things that are almost exactly the same. The different angles on the same thing. It shows us how to overcome suffering. Yeah. This is why this is so important. This is why it was said, yeah, because it uh, helps us to overcome, to get where we want to get. Yeah. So Dhamma, independent origination, everything is interesting. Once you start to understand the Sutta as well, you see everything is really connected with each other. I like to think of the suttas as, as like a big jigsaw puzzle. Yeah, there's like one picture, and maybe it's a very simple picture, like the picture of the sun. All you see is the sun. Yeah, remember what enlightenment is like. Enlightenment is like, bang, wow, now I understand. It's like one moment of insight. And a moment of insight is a bit like the sun, yeah, clarity, the light going on, the dispelling of darkness. There's one picture. But that picture is then uh, has to be explained, and that is explained through all the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle. All had to fit together somehow. So each little piece is like part of this teaching, part of this insight, uh, making up one big picture. Uh. And this is what the more you understand the content of the suttas, the more you understand how it all is related together in this way. Uh. So the dhamma and dependent origination are the same thing here. Uh. The dhamma here being that insight of the Buddha. Okay, I'll do one last uh, question here. Dear Ajahn Brahmali, even spelled my name correctly. Wow, that is uh, pretty cool. Not everyone gets that right. Um, sometimes when I meditate and let go, the mind tends to slow down and calm down, which is nice. However, at some point it is disturbed by the body aches and pains. E.g. my tummy is upset, past old injuries in my shoulder hurt. I don't really know how to let go further, disappear as my mind is disturbed, restless due to my body. Any suggestions or tips? By the way, I really like the bit you talked about removing the conceit I am. Many thanks. Um, so body aches is a big problem in meditation and it, uh, when you when your meditation becomes very profound, the body aches don't, are not a problem anymore. But uh, initially, in the early stages, they can be very difficult and hard to overcome. So what I recommend you to do, if the body becomes, you become, your mind becomes disturbed because of bodily aches, try to change your posture. That's what I would recommend as a first thing. Yeah. Sit in a different way. Take a chair, take a stool. In the worst case scenario, lie down on the floor. Uh, yeah? Some people get very good meditation by lying down. It is also allowable. I always like to tell the story. There's a very famous monk in Thailand called Ajahn Ganha. And he has been uh, to Bodhinyana many times. I have visited him in Thailand. And he came to the Bodhinyana monastery many years ago. He stayed for the rains retreat. Uh, and he was asked the question, well, how do you meditate? He said, I just lie down on the floor. 
And so what do you do? Well, no, I don't, don't do anything at all when I lie down. Well, don't you fall asleep then? No, that would be doing something here. Because, <laughs> yeah, you have to kind of move your mind to fall asleep in a certain way, but actually you're just aware, you don't do anything at all. So he said his best meditation was when he lies down, because then the body is really relaxed. Yeah, A lot of people fall asleep, but if you find that nothing else works, you can't, you can't lie down. That is acceptable. Yeah, It's one way of doing it. So change your posture. Go and walk a little bit. Yeah, um, Have a cup of tea if necessary. Yeah, Sit at, on a chair. Do whatever it takes to get away from those pains. Uh, give, ask someone here to give you a shoulder massage if your shoulder is, is hurting. Yeah, That can be nice sometimes because sometimes people do get a bit tense in the, in the bodies. Uh, so uh, don't be afraid of moving. I think one of the biggest mistakes we do in meditation is this idea that we should not move. We should just sit with the pain. I think that is a very bad advice. It is good advice if you're a really advanced meditator, maybe. But for the vast majority of meditators, I think it's bad advice. Because it just gets in the way of peace and stillness. And then you don't get anywhere at all. Okay, everyone. Well, I'm glad you're going to be here for one more day. What a wonderful thing. You're going to see each other one more day. That's great. You're not going to disappear. So that's uh, excellent. But uh, enough seeing each other for today. <laughs> there comes a point when you have to say goodbye. So have a very nice rest tonight. Uh, and let's just finish off the day by paying respect, doing the Arahang Sammasambuddha to the Triple Gem.